coming up today on the Lead to Succeed podcast. In this culture of yes, and I would get this all the time, you, how can I say no? How can I say no to my boss? And I say, you can say no by framing it. Frame the conversation in a way that it's going to make you look bad. And any respectable boss, any respectable leader in the organization will respect the fact that you've created boundaries in a framework of saying, here are all the projects I'm doing, and if I take this one on, I can't promise you it's going to be that best job ever, and I don't want it to reflect poorly upon you. Do you want to learn the tricks the top leaders use to get the most out of themselves and their teams? Well, Naftali Hoff is here to help. Lead to Succeed picks the brains of top leaders to learn about their challenges, insights, and best practices. Here's Naftali. Hello, Lead to Succeed Nation. It's Naftali Hoff, and welcome to Lead to Succeed, Episode 20. Today's interesting fact is, in 1961, Fidel Castro closed Cuban schools for a whole year and formed teachers into a literacy army with the goal to eradicate illiteracy. By the end of the year, 700,000-plus previously illiterate people had learned how to read. Today's guest knows a thing or two about education and how to combat ignorance. Dr. James Kelly is the author of The Crucible's Gift, Five Lessons from Authentic Leaders Who Thrive in Adversity. The book unpacks the journey a leader takes to become more authentic, starting with their own crucible. James, his wife Mary, and his four children just live just outside of Dubai, where he teaches, writes, and produces a bi-weekly podcast, Executive After Hours. The podcast is predicated on interviewing executives about their personal journey. And I had the pleasure of guesting on James' show not that long ago, and I'm super excited to be able to host him today on Lead to Succeed. James, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Oh, gee, this is super, super much my honor to be on your show. So thank you for having me. And by the way, what a great little fun fact. I like it. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because what I try to do, I'll lift the curtain for all of Lead to Succeed Nation. I try to find interesting facts that number one, will sort of get people thinking. And number two, will tie in naturally to the people who I have the honor to converse with in a given show. And so I like this one because I thought that, you know, I'm not here to uh, prop up Fidel Castro unnecessarily, but this idea of having a goal and, you know, doing something drastic in some cases, in this case, pretty drastic. I don't think most educators would ever think about shutting down school for such an extensive period of time, but to really find a way by which to empower people to make a meaningful change that would have a lasting impact. And I think, frankly, that's really what our work is all about as, as leadership experts, as people who are trying to give to the community, as podcasters, as authors. You know, we're trying to get ideas out there that are going to make a difference. And sometimes you really do need to take something thing which is a little bit out of the box and unconventional and put it out there and see if it can make a difference. So I really liked it. And I hope that uh, it was a nice way by which to introduce you into our show today. <laughs> you know, we, we have kind of a uh, sarcastic stance that we, we talk about in higher ed. We, we say we try to stamp out ignorance. Um, and so that is one of the things that we, we try to work on is, and I actually, by the way, like the phrase of, of kind of like shocking the system essentially paraphrasing, you know, at least for me and my perspective is that when you talk about leading or educating or whatever you're doing, sometimes you have to break through the monotony of the topic. And that means thinking of something from a different perspective, flipping it on its side and getting students to, to really take a moment and put on a different pair of glasses, if you will, 
and and just take a look, right? And sometimes when you switch the glasses, the colors are a lot brighter for them. Absolutely. That's a great way to start. And actually, I'm very interested. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is because I wanted to get your take on something which I think may not necessarily be so intuitive for people. Now, I'm not asking this necessarily because I don't have an answer since I'm also an educator uh, in terms of background, and that's really the way by which I got to where I am today. But I would love to hear, James, if you could walk us through a little bit. Number one, uh, we do. I do want to get into how you got specifically to Dubai and the work that you're doing <laughs> over there, which, which really is amazing. And frankly, I just returned. We're recording this in the middle of December. I just returned from a week in Israel. Uh, which is not terribly far from you, at least from the American perspective. Yeah, yeah. Um, be- yes. Because I have a son who's studying there. I'm embarrassed to say I hadn't been there since I was a student uh, about 23 years ago. So um, I have siblings there and really it was just a great opportunity to connect with with the land, with the people over there, with relatives, and just in general to be part of that experience again. But let's stay with the educational connection, specifically to leadership for a moment. And the question I have for you is, for many people, you know, you kind of think of leadership as a as a business or perhaps a military concept. Maybe in the area of education, you think about it as the principal, but in, oftentimes you don't necessarily think about it from the perspective of the teacher or the professor if you're teaching in a you know in a university. And so, I'm curious to know in your mind what drew you into leadership in particular, considering your your background in education, and and how. In what way, perhaps, does your understanding of education and working with students and their families, et cetera, how does it give you a unique perspective on what leadership is about and how to make it better for people? Well, I really appreciate that question, and I don't know if I can fully answer it in the depth that maybe you could answer it, but for for me, you know, leadership has always been something that I've struggled with. You know, I interviewed somebody a while back who said that they had a mentor at one point in their life that kind of said to them, listen, we, we kind of gravitate towards the things that we want to solve for ourselves. We want to be better at for ourselves. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing this poorly at this point. But for me, my, my journey to leadership and writing this particular book was really a manifestation of failures that I had repeatedly in my life and trying to understand why you know, I see myself as gregarious, outgoing, witty, uh, intelligent. But, but what, what were my failures? And in that, you know, I had to kind of take a moment and look, okay, where are leaders succeeding that I'm failing? And so that's kind of my journey. But in the classroom, I find it a totally different animal because I have a sense of confidence and competence that allows me to engage with the students in what I think is a fairly unique and fun way. And in higher ed, it's a little bit different than high school or middle school or elementary school. Across all of those, you have to be engaging. And I just want to say this while, I, while I'm on the air is that my heroes are the elementary school teachers because they literally have the most important job in terms of setting up the foundation and the love of learning for students that goes on the rest of their life. Sure. And I think it's an, in, it's an injustice the way that we treat teachers in America. Just that's my two cents. I, I just get really upset about it. But getting back to your question, I think that leadership plays an integral role in the classroom. It, the students look to you. They look to see how you enjoy what you're doing. They look to see how you can get them to think differently. And not every topic is the most exciting thing. And so you have to figure out how can you make it exciting for that individual. 
You know, there's there's a saying that I like to use is that I like to meet my students where they're at and take them on a journey to where they need to go. And so I use that as kind of my premise in the classroom is trying to figure out where the students are currently at in their education and their own journey and then move them forward. And that takes leadership to do it because it takes self-awareness. It takes a patience. It takes listening. Uh, it takes preparation. You know, those are all attributes of, of a leader. Absolutely. This is incredible. And I'm I'm jotting down notes furiously to try to keep up with you here. There are a couple of pieces you just mentioned uh, I would love to be able to unpack a little bit further uh, before we move forward with anything else. First of all, I wanted to acknowledge and commend you for your courage. Uh, I actually have a very similar story in some regards. I can't say that my own leadership experience was perfect. I don't think, frankly, anybody's is. Yeah. Um, but actually, what I what I did when writing my own book, which is Becoming the New Boss, was to really try to reflect hard on my successes, but also my challenges, and to say to myself in retrospect, what were the things I would have liked to have known as a new leader that, frankly, I didn't necessarily know or perhaps didn't appreciate as much as I needed to, and then create a blueprint, certainly not a perfect one, but at least a viable one for people who are transitioning either in leadership or within leadership in order to give them the best opportunity to hit the ground running and to enjoy sustained success. So I think what you talked about right up front before I even asked it in terms of having you know, <laughs> challenges and struggling, I think we all struggle. And I think the more that we are open to the idea of leadership by definition is going to entail failure. It's going to entail missteps along the way. And the more that we can own that and be willing to accept it so that we could learn from it, I think is really, really important. So thank you very much for setting that tone. And that really- Can I add to that? Oh, sure. Go right ahead. So I think that sometimes there's a misconception about leadership in general. And you know there are, as, as you've written one and I've written one, and you'll have many people on your show that have written books about leadership. And I think that we have to be very clear that there isn't a one-size-fits-all and that there are many different shades in the leadership spectrum and you have to figure out which one of those shades make you the most effective leader. And, and to me, the best shade is always going to be the one that's truest to you as a person, as a leader. You know, not every leader is going to be the most outgoing person. Not every leader is going to be the most interactive. Maybe they should be, but every leader has their own particular strengths. And you know, with all these leadership books out there, you know, for your audience that's listening, anyone that's listening, you've, you've got to pick up a ton of them to figure out which one resonates with you best. Take bits and pieces from all of them, but, but figure out what resonates with you best. And I think that's really important when you start slogging through all the leadership – and slog is a, is a proper term sometimes – slogging through all the leadership uh, books that are out there. I would agree with you. And actually in my book, I do talk about the idea – that we do, of course, have, like you indicated, different personalities, different what we might call leadership profiles or interests or mm-hmm. you know inclinations, et cetera. And for one person to try to replicate somebody else, for example, in my case, my, the, my predecessor was very gregarious and extremely high energy. Not to say that I didn't have those qualities, but certainly not in the same type of way. I think much more extroverted than I So uh, it doesn't make his style better and my style worse. Mm -hmm. It just makes them different. And one of the things that I think you need to know is, number one, who are you and what makes you great for who you are? But number two, to the degree that there might be expectations 
of certain types of, let's call it behaviors, certain types of ways of operating. At the least, you need to be aware of that. And then to take it a little bit further, I do presentations, for example, on something called True Colors, which, which is similar to the MBTI, but a different focus on you know, how our, our personalities come together. And, and, and knowing your color as well as knowing the colors of those that you serve as leader could really make a big difference because oftentimes if you, for example, are a green and you're really focused on the bottom line and what's going to you know, fix the problem, you may not be as empathetic as a blue and you have mm-hmm. people who are blues on your team that they really need that handholding. They really need that support. And it doesn't mean you have to become a blue, but it does mean that you want to be sensitive to their needs and find ways perhaps to stretch a little bit beyond your comfort zone so that you ultimately can serve them and support them in a way that they feel served and supported. But what you're talking about, you know, and listen, uh, I'm all down with colors, but you're talking about a core attribute of just listening. Oh, yes. And, and that, I mean, just, just in, like, I think sometimes in leadership, you know, I was on a call a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I was doing, I did a, I think it was a 12 part or 13 part series on diversity and inclusion for my alma mater that I got my PhD from. And it was a podcast series. And so we were doing a debriefing and the woman in charge of the office, the alumni department, literally was one of the worst listeners I've ever, I've ever heard. She would cut us off. She would defend every choice she made. She, and she's not the expert in podcasting. And there was three of us in there who listened to a ton of podcasts. I do podcasts. And she kind of discredited every opinion, value, and statement that we had. And I just kind of shook my head thinking, you don't get it. Right, like the first for me at least, the first rule of leadership is always listen first, talk second, and 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 to me, those are some of the most effective leaders you're ever going to find because, as as an individual who works for them, you get your sense of value by letting your voice be heard. I would agree with you, but I, I guess my point there would be even with great listening, I think that there's certain stylistic elements that. One could be sensitive to. So, for example, going back to the colors that I happened to reference before, not that everybody listening to this has full context, but just for the purpose of conversation, a green might say, you know, might sit there and listen and get all the information. And once they feel they have the technical know-how, they're ready to move forward. Whereas a blue is still looking to connect more on the emotional side Mm -hmm. and make sure that the person feels heard and sort of works through, you know, how are you feeling and kind of asking those empathetic type questions. So again, it's not necessarily even a reflection. Are you a quote, good or not good listener uh, in in a, what we might call a neutral or balanced yeah. perspective. It's, it's really more about matter understanding of, them. It's about understanding yeah, your employees. Yeah. To be a listener, at. right. To be a listener for the person who's speaking. And that might look a little different depending on who the who the speaker is. So just knowing your people mm-hmm. can be helpful. I guess that That's, was really, yeah. you know, where I was no, going with it. Yeah. I absolutely agree with you. And I, I and I don't even know these colors, but I'm sure I'm blue. Just by the sh- <laughs> just by the sheer definition you've given so I, far. I think I think I'm I should sure give you there are two other colors as well. I should give you a little more information. You'll make your own assessment. <laughs> anyway, by the one other thing, James, I wanted to come back to because you made a great point before. I actually remember writing a blog post on this topic and then putting a poem together before I presented. I presented it at the ASCD conference a few years back about teacher leadership and the idea that just because you don't have a formal leadership title doesn't mean that you aren't a leader. You talked about, you know, finding where your students are, meeting them in that location, and then inspiring them to take that journey with you, et cetera, which is great imagery. 
as we're talking about bringing a student along, sort of like the differentiated model of taking their interests, taking their skills, where they are today, and how do I advance them individually as well as collectively. But to bring this out of the educational space so that everybody who's listening and lead to succeed nation, regardless of their of their vocation, regardless of uh, which profession they're in, the idea of leading up, the idea of no matter where you are in an organization, that you can have a voice and you could be influential. So um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. You know, what, what you think leading up means and any, certainly any anecdotes, any examples that you have seen uh, where somebody has really done that well so that people who are listening and they report to somebody or maybe they report to multiple levels, they can start to think about, you know, honing their own leadership skills and perhaps even more importantly, making a positive difference in their organization, despite the fact that they don't have a leadership title attached to their name. Well, I mean, I think that's really, really awesome that you bring that up as a key attribute and something that an individual can do that's not necessarily in a leadership position. Because one of the biggest things I think that can set an an employee apart in any organization is really by behavioral integrity, by having the ability to show up, do the job, and do it right. And and I think there's a difference between showing up and doing the job, doing it right, and being a kiss, kiss up. You know, yeah. I was paraphrasing that. Sorry for your audience. <laughs> it could have been uh, a lot worse, so we'll take it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I think that sometimes when you work in an organization, when you're not in the leadership, and I think I've been guilty of this in the past, to be honest with you, I never took on the responsibility or roles to do the extra work because I didn't see the point. And sometimes that's missing the point altogether. When the greater point is just is just to live your life with integrity and self-respect, self-respect for those around you, self-respect for those above you. And so when I talk about things like integrity, what I'm really refer, like what I'm referring to is there's two types. There's the moral integrity, but there's really the behavioral integrity, which I think is really important. Moral I kind of always put to the side because each person has to has to make, put their own set of morals in their own type of glass and they got to drink it themselves. But behaviorally, I think showing up and being honest is really something very difficult to do in an office setting as a leadership or an aspiring leader to be, if you will. Because being honest means you also have to tell your boss sometimes no. And to me, that's a form of leadership. And, there, and let me give you an example of this. You know, there's many people I've talked to or worked with where they live in this culture of yes, right? We're definitely in this world of yes. When you are working your way up an organization and, and people scoff at me when I say this, but it, we're in this society of yes, yes, I can do this. Yes, I'll be there. Yes, I'll meet you for this. Yes, I'll take on this project. Yes, 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 yes. But what happens is by saying yes, you end up saying no. And what I mean by that is that by saying yes to everything means that all the work that you're doing gets halved or quartered or one-tenth in terms of the quality that you can do until at some point that messy spaghetti plate starts spilling over onto the table and everyone starts to see through the cracks. And so for me, when you're trying to actually show leadership, it's being able to have the conversation with your leader, your boss, your supervisor saying, listen, I want to give you the best work possible and I want to do the job the best as possible. However, if I take on this project currently where I'm at, it will not get my full attention. It will not be the best work I can do. And in doing so, it makes you look bad, potentially to your boss. And so trying to make you, you know, so I frame it in this question, in this statement or in this, in this context of it's really about the other person. Because you could give this to me, but then you either have to take something else off my plate and or you've got to allow me to give this project to somebody else or you need to give it to somebody else. And so that to me is, is you know, there's a thousand examples of leading up. But to me, this is one example of leading for yourself and for the organization and for the people you work with. Because in essence, you're thinking of them as, as much as you're thinking of yourself. 
and you know, in this culture of yes, and I always get this all the time. You, how can I say no? How can I say no to my boss? And I say you can say no by framing it. Frame the conversation in a way that it's going to make you look bad. And any respectable boss, any respectable leader in the organization will respect the fact that you've created boundaries and a framework of saying, here are all the projects I'm doing. And if I take this one on, I can't promise you it's going to be that best job ever. And I don't want it to reflect poorly upon you. Now, again, I, I make this sound like it's probably easy or impossible. I don't know where you want to stand on this fence. But the reality is that if you can create your own boundaries and then frame the conversation in a way that's benefiting the other person, I believe you're creating a win-win situation. You know, it's very interesting, James. This, that was a great answer, by the way, first of all. And I think a lot of depth there. And frankly, if I, if I didn't have so many other things I wanted to talk to you about, <laughs> I would go a lot deeper here. But I, I happen to be a uh, religious Jew. And so I, I do believe in the concept of uh, divine providence. But whether you believe or whether you uh, believe in karma or anything else, it's just interesting that the timing of things you know, sometimes it's just too hard to ignore. And I remember just being on my Twitter feed yesterday and uh, seeing one um, thought leader, I think it was James, is it Altshuler? I, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that I'm correctly. Sure. But either way, uh, talking about how he says no to so many various things, whether it's pitches or or requests or whatever, so that he can remain focused and, you know, creative. I don't think he answers to anyone. So for him, it may be a little bit different. <laughs> but just today in my inbox, I got from SmartBrief, who I happen to write for, uh, a post from Joel Garfinkel, who's also an executive coach and well-known in the leadership space. And the first item he writes over here, as far as the four ways to avoid burnout at work, number one is to say no. Hmm. And so I think that it really is important for us to be able to be leaders in our organization, whether, like I said, we have a title or not, to understand what we can or cannot do or what we're prepared to do. Uh, obviously, if we see things that need to be improved upon to be able to have the fortitude to make those recommendations, obviously in a respectful type of way that's going to garner the type of uh, listening and hopefully responsiveness that we seek, but at the same time, also be able to draw lines in the sand and say, you know, if you really want me to perform well, mm. uh, I can't take on too many things. I certainly can't take them on to the level of quality uh, that you're looking for. So that, I, like I said, is awesome and certainly and certainly something that uh, deserves more conversation. But I mentioned- Let me just- Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, just, just and then we can pivot wherever you want to go. But, sure. But you know, to, to those of you who are listening who say, there's no way my boss would take that, there's no, then you have to ask yourself a couple of questions. One, if you're at that organization for the long haul, is that the right place for you? Do you feel valued? Do you feel like you should be there? You know, and I think that's a, that's a difficult question. And everyone has circumstances that that makes them have to or not have to. And listen, I have four kids, all under ten. It's not necessarily easy or convenient for me to switch jobs, for sure. But if you if you're in a place where you where you don't think you can say no to someone, you need to really ask yourself if that's a place that you feel valued and supported to do the best work that you can do. And I just want to kind of make that a, a clear point. Oh yeah, that's very important, and I would agree with you. Sometimes we have fear whether it's that we'll lose our job or perhaps lose even our standing in relationships with with our boss. Uh, it's unfortunate that so many people do have that conundrum that they have to deal with. And and I, I would be I would be lying if I said that people who worked for me didn't also, you know, possess fear in, in conversing with me, at least at the beginning. Yeah. At least at the beginning. And I and I write about that in the book as well. You know, how I remember one conversation with two of my teachers, two women who were 
well-established in the school, taught in the same department. And I called them in for a meeting to, to talk about something. And I remember when I was done, sort of like the air coming out of the balloon a little bit, because as they shared with me afterwards, they thought I was calling them in, you know, for some kind of scary news about their job or whatever it was. And, and frankly, I had no idea why they even thought in those terms, but I guess because I had not built adequate equity and enough uh, credibility, so to speak, and in terms of, you know, really deepening the relationship, they had no idea where they stood and they were just afraid of sharing anything mm. that they thought would compromise their standing. Yeah. But now I do, I do need to pivot. And I think that this is going to be really, <laughs> really valuable because, you know, I, I'm curious to know in the short, the short story, there might be a longer version, <laughs> how you got to, to Dubai it's not because, possible. you not know, possible. <laughs> you are Irish. Is that correct? Is that, is that the background? Uh, Scott, Scott is Irish. Scott yeah. Irish. Okay. So that's not usually the, the type of profile you find walking around Dubai, unless I'm wrong on that. Number one, number, so how did you get there? And number two, any leadership lessons that Westerners or just people from a different cultural background yeah. can learn from that society? Because I think that would be very intriguing. Yeah. So um, you would be surprised by the amount of, of foreigners, expats, Westerners that live in United Arab Emirates. So just a little fun fact is that the population is roughly 9.5 million. Of that 9.5 million, about 7.5 million are expats. Really? Or foreigners. Now, you can break that down, and the largest chunk of those two are Pakistanis and Afghanis that live in the country. But but the top, the top probably third of that is all Westerners, all Irish, American, Canadian, uh, British. So there is a – especially in Dubai, which is 90 percent expats, it is – so it's like you live in New York City, but in a really hot town in the summer. <laughs> so it's so it's very very cosmopolitan. Lots of wealth. I mean, you see Ferraris and Mercedes and Rolls Royces all over the place, and not just from the sheikhs, but just from all sorts of different people. So, so from that perspective, it's actually very multicultural. Believe it or not, you know, my my kids go to school at a place that's with um, Irish, British, Jordanian, Syrian, uh, obviously Emirati. Uh, so, I mean, they, they're, in a, they're in a classroom that's just uh, UN nations, so to speak. So it's, it's really multicultural. So how I got here is that I, I took a job about two years ago. I had one of, my, one of my major crucibles, I guess you would say, when I didn't get a tenure at St. Joe's University there in Philadelphia. And I thought I was going to get it. I didn't get it. But at the same time, my wife and I had an itch to move. She was a military brat. And I had moved pretty much every year. Uh, every year, sorry, I had moved seven times, eight times since I graduated college. So I'd moved quite a lot. So uh, one of my close friends was working at the university out here called United Arab Emirates University. And he said, hey, we got a job opening. Would you be interested? And we just kind of thought, what a great adventure for our family while they're young to go see part of the world. So for example, last summer, we spent six weeks in Portugal. We probably would never have done that if we lived in the US. You know, Not this summer, but the following summer, we'll probably do Europe as a six-week vacation, just travel around. You know, so those, those educational learnings are on the ground for my kids. That's in the moment. That is an experience that you'll never probably be able to relep, uh, replicate again. And, and, and for me, that actually is teaching my children a sense of compassion, uh, a sense of empathy, a sense of equality in terms of different stripes, uh, different folks from around the world and and tolerance you know and i think that's those are all really important lessons that we want to all teach our kids but to have the experience i think embeds it a bit better absolutely i did not realize just how cosmopolitan i think the cosmopolitan piece yeah. uh, i might have known but just the the degree of 
of blend yeah. that you're describing is is very interesting. You know, I mentioned before that I had been in Israel, and and certainly mm-hmm. uh, there are two primary, I guess you would say, uh, cultural backgrounds. Though even you know the Jewish community is is quite um, quite varied in terms of you know country of origin and uh, type of prayer and all sorts of things like that. But you basically just have to a large degree, you have the Jewish community, you have the Arab community. Uh, to a lesser degree, you have people from other parts of the Orient who have moved there for uh, service purposes, you know, to find employment, mm-hmm. other people from different backgrounds, but certainly not to the degree that you described over there, which is quite mm-hmm. interesting. So uh, thank you yeah. for that. And I think the the leadership lesson, it sounds like, you know, we could really extract here is the idea of, 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 of leading your own family, which I think is beautiful. Yeah. You know, the notion of, of really thinking about what are the values you want to teach your kids? What are the values that you and your wife want to really sort of have as the framework of your family and, uh, and, and finding opportunities by which to share those? Well, and just and once – thank you for that. And those, those are all absolutely 100 percent true. Taking that a step further from the practitioner's perspective, you're really not going to find probably a, a more diverse environment to where you have to figure out how to lead differently based on cultural background. You could be in an office – that it has uh, an Indian, a Pakistani, a, a Brit, uh, someone from the U.S., someone from Australia, someone from Hungary. And, and all of these individuals come from a different cultural embeddedness, if you will, which means they process communication differently, which means they relate to each other differently. They have different holidays. You know, there's, there's a company here called Omnicom, and you know, I know the, the general manager of it. They literally celebrate every single – uh, employees, how's it go? Every single employee's national country holiday, one mm. of them, mm. to give to basically expose the whole office to it. So Got it. It's, it's it's awesome. Yeah, that really is awesome. All right, one final question I have for you, James, before we pivot further to our next segment, <laughs> because we did mention in the bio about your book, and I really would like to get at least something discussed. I know you referenced it yeah, in passing, please. but the Crucible's yeah. gift: five lessons from authentic leaders who thrive in adversity. Uh, tell us why you wrote the book and tell me something meaningful that you learned from that process. Okay. So I'll try to be short and sharp, which is really hard for me. I wrote the book because it was something that had been inside me for a really long time. And when I started doing my podcast, Executives After Hours, I started to see this pattern of these ideas that I've had for a really long time that had never put, I've never put down on paper. And I started seeing it again and again and again and again. And the pattern just started popping out at me. And I thought to myself, you know, about 10 years ago, I, I wrote down a goal saying I want to write a book in my early 40s. I had 43 as, as the time. I'm 43. You know, I've only looked at these goals one other time since I wrote them. But it was, it was etched in my head. And so, you know, I wrote this book as a way to say that, in essence, we all have crucibles. Some are bigger than others. You know, for me, my dad died when I was 20 years old. You know, I have filed bankruptcy when I was in my late 20s. You know, I mean, I've got a, I've got a ton of them myself, but, but everyone has their crucibles. And what I found is, is that you have a choice in that crucible. And it's in that choice is where I think that really strong leaders are forged. And, and that choice breaks down into two things. One, own it, inspect it, poke it. And when I'm talking about it, I'm talking about your crucible and look and learning what you can do from it. The other choice is blame it, um, victimize it. And let it hold you back from where you can go. And there are two distinct paths in that moment of the crucible. Now, now, 
let me be clear that not everyone recognizes the crucible in the moment. It could be three months, six months, five years. It just depends on the person. But the leaders that I interviewed, the 140 plus leaders, and you know, you and I talked in your episode 149, just want to throw that out there to the audience, is that every leader I spoke to had some sort of crucible. And it was in that crucible or after that crucible, I guess, that they really started to realize and grow their self-awareness. And in that self-awareness is when they started making leaps to lead better, to be more clear about what their purpose was. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think what we're going to have to do here is sort of hold that thought because usually I wrap up asking my guests for a final life lesson, but I'm, I'm trying to imagine a better lesson than what you just described. The idea of being <laughs> in the crucible and sort of making your choices, it almost reminds me, I forget, unfortunately, right now, the name of the individual. He was a very well-known psychologist who survived the Holocaust. Uh, and he wrote wrote about you know being in that 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 really really difficult situation and having everything all of his freedoms stripped from him, but just having the ability to still be in control of your choices and your responses. And I don't know that I'm not here to judge anybody's misfortune and difficulties, but you know the Holocaust certainly ranks up there with with any any difficulty, both on a personal <laughs> and national level. And, and to yeah. have the have the uh, yeah. fortitude to think in those terms is just awesome and amazing. And mm -hmm. so we're going to try to lighten the conversation just a little bit because I think that's most appropriate at this point. I know you have a, not only a lighter side to you, but a really really fun side. And I'm going to ask you. You might have already answered this first one, but here in our rapid fire segment. Tell me, James, your favorite Arabic cuisine. Oh, geez. Uh, you know what? I don't even know if this is Arabic, but I am I am really hooked on something called paratha bread. Mm. And it's like a, I don't know, souped up tortilla that just tastes amazing. <laughs> so that's probably what I'm really, really hooked on right now is is uh, this thing called paratha bread. Got it. Okay. <laughs> I was just in Israel with the shawarma and the falafel, so I, I, I'm, yes. I'm, I'm, I'm imagining yes. all of it floating around me. Introvert or extrovert? Uh, both. I think Dan Pink calls that an ambivert. I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> he actually, it's I interesting because like he talks about in the book yeah. uh, To Sell as Human, the idea that mm -hmm. most of us are actually somewhere in between. And I think we've been conditioned because of MBTI yeah. to think of ourselves as one or the other. Yeah, either or. I'm both. What you miss most about not living stateside? Oh, simplicity. You know, I, I think sometimes things here are a little bit more complex than they need to be. Uh, I say that though, and I have to remind myself all the time that this country is only 45 years old. So- it's it's still a baby, so to speak, but simplicity for sure. And finally, something that you currently collect or at one point collected. Think of hobbies, things like this. Man, all right. So here is my embarrassing collection that I don't do anymore, but I did all the way up till I was about 18, 19. I was an avid Toronto Blue Jays baseball fan, and I collected everything you can think of. Socks, boxers, pennants, jerseys, hats. I had 25 hats. Um, I had 15 different pennants. I had baseball signed. So yeah, it was pretty much everything Toronto Blue Jays. You probably needed a bunch of those because I think they've changed their uniform quite a few times over the years. Yeah. <laughs> As a Yankees fan, I've seen some of that. Yeah. Anyway, J James, it's, it really has been a, a fantastic opportunity for me to connect with you again and to learn from you uh, even more. I really want to thank you so very much for joining us on the Lead to Succeed podcast today. And I really hope that Lead to Succeed Nation will um, connect with you. And so in order to do that, can you tell us, please, uh, how can people reach you, find out more about your work, and uh, hopefully connect with you, not only in terms of your own podcast, but just other things that you're involved with? Yeah, please. So first off, just go to my website, which is um, 
Dr. Dr. James Kelly, K-E-L-L-E-Y, or you could do the other because I bought them both, and subscribe there. In that, starting in January, there's basically going to be a series of things coming out from me in January, moving all the way up to the book launch, which is April 23rd uh, as well. So be a part of that. So subscribe or just email me at james at Dr. James Kelly. Anything you need, anything big or small, it doesn't matter to me. I respond to every email. Uh, I believe that is if you're going to take the time and send me something, I want to respect you and send you something back. So those are the two easiest ways. You can follow me at, at Executives A Hour on uh, Twitter, and uh, it's probably the easiest place, or at Dr. James K on Instagram. Awesome. And we're going to include all your links on the in the show notes as well. So everybody certainly make sure to connect with James in those areas. Thank you again so very much for being with us today, for sharing your wisdom and your experiences. And I certainly hope to be able to continue to learn from you in the future. Oh, thanks, Naftali. I really appreciate your time and energy as well. Today's leadership quote is from Ray Kroc. The quality of a leader is reflected in the standards they set for themselves. Thanks so much for listening to this episode and for investing in yourself so that you could lead to succeed. Before you go, don't forget to pick up your copy of Becoming the New Boss on Amazon. Learn more about the book at becomingthenewboss.com. If you already got your copy, please be sure to leave your comment on Amazon. Thanks again for listening and don't forget to lead to succeed. Have a great day.